are we in a late economic cycle? What does that mean for asset allocation? Today, at the Commodity Exchange Podcast, we are joined by Warren Pies from 314 Research, who will help us explore these questions and much more. Welcome to the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring to you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you're an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this is the podcast for you. Before we begin, I do need to state the following. To clarify, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and 314 Research and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. Well, welcome, Warren. Before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, 314 Research, for the benefit of the viewers who are unfamiliar with your firm. Yeah, thank you for having me, Natasha. It's always good to touch base with the team at Wisdom Tree uh, and talk commodities with you specifically. Uh, 314 Research, uh, we're an independent macro institutional macro research firm. I would say that we approach markets from a top-down perspective, and we are, I would classify us as macro quant, and most importantly, we're independent. So we have, we're not sell-side, we have no dog in the fight, we're not there's no reason for us to come to any given conclusion. So total independence and really a philosophic reliance on the data. Wow, that's great. I mean, to the benefit for our viewers, um, you back all your uh, opinions, well, your 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 written uh, positions uh, with well-developed models and stellar research. So hopefully we can learn a lot from the insights from your your models and your research. Yeah, and that. to that point, you've uh, just recently written a piece called uh, a late cycle feeling. Um, so w- what exactly is a late cycle? How do you define the late cycle? Yeah, uh, a late cycle is one of those terms or many terms like this on Wall Street and in the investment world that get thrown around a lot, but are never really defined. And whenever you do a quantitative study, you have to, one of the things you realize right away, if you want to do regime analysis or anything quantitative, you have to define your regimes. And so for this report and our analysis, we decided to define late cycle as the period of time in a Fed hiking cycle following the last Fed hike. So in order to uh, know your late cycle, you have to make an assumption that the Fed is done with its hiking campaign. And so that was, that's part of our working assumption here. And, uh, but, and that's how, for this report specifically, we defined late cycle. So what is the evidence for a late cycle at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's quite a bit of, of evidence. I mean, that was one of the, the, the big uh, things that we went through in our report was, like, first off, you have to decide, are we late, late cycle? You know, before you get into the next question, which is how does the cycle end? Do we have a recession? Do we have a soft landing, whatever it's going to be. So first time, first question is, are we late cycle? We make that assumption, but is, do we have evidence that points to that? And 
And one of the keys for us is the labor market. And I'd say the labor market is now at this point in time, definitively pointing towards a late cycle environment. And again, this doesn't mean we're going to be in a, a hard landing uh, recession environment. It just means that we are at closer to the end of this cycle. So I believe the Fed is done hiking. That's number one. Number two, in the labor market, we see the housing employment, residential construction employment numbers have peaked. They, those, those numbers peaked in January or in a drawdown. That's a pretty important uh, guidepost for us. We've talked about it on a lot of podcasts and television. It's just that the, the housing market's a leading segment of the economy where monetary policy will work through the economy uh, via the housing channel. And so we watched that and it, it usually has a leading tendency to the economy. So the housing payrolls, despite the fact that overall payrolls are still growing, housing payrolls have been shrinking for now seven months. Uh, the other big thing is we're starting to see payrolls revised within the labor market. These revisions, uh, if you go back in time, so you, know, you have your initial print on the non-farm payrolls and then there's a revision and they keep revising the data. So if you go back in time and look at the initial print and revisions and kind of accumulate that over time, over a rolling 12 month period, let's say, you see the general direction of revisions is higher. When the economy is growing, you're actually adding jobs via those revisions. And then there are these periods generally before recessions, but sometimes before a soft landing as well, where you see the revisions to the data start to turn negative. And that's where we are right now. We're starting to see those payroll revisions roll over. Uh, in this last report, the June jobs, in fact, I think were revised down by more than 100,000. So it, it basically cut June jobs in half. So if you go back to June, really thought we had created over 200,000 jobs. It's actually more like 100,000 jobs in June. Uh, and those revisions are also impacting the residential construction payrolls we just referenced. So in, um, in uh, August, you had payroll growth, but when you go back to July, there was actually a reduction in the, in, uh, the farther reduction in the revision to those residential construction jobs. So we lost over 7,000 jobs in that segment of the economy in July. And that's a, that's a recessionary type of print. When you get to that 7,000 plus jobs lost in residential construction payrolls, that puts you on a glide path to a recession. So when you start looking at the revisions with the data, it tells us that the labor market is getting into this late cycle place as well. And I see in your report, you also talk about, um, you know, withholding taxes as well. Um, you know, there's indication from, uh, you know, the, the, the pace of you know, uh, withholding taxes that that was also, you've seen past correlations with, uh, with recessions also in, in that data as well. Yeah, withholding taxes is a, is a great, uh, data set because it comes in daily and it's uh, it's direct from paychecks. So you're getting a very much a real-time look into the labor market, the labor economy. And so what, one of the things we do is we, we accumulate the withholding taxes and then we, we annualize the three-month change. And that's what we were looking at in that report. And because we want to get a, a an early view on the direction of, uh, of those withholdings. And th they've actually on that basis have rolled over and are going negative at this point. And that's a rare event. You don't see that 
uh, generally outside of recessions or pre-recession periods. And the other times it happens is when you have tax policy that gets changed, but we've obviously had no tax policy change here. So to me, this is an important piece of confirming evidence to the revisions data that we just talked about. So you're seeing negative revisions and you're seeing tax data starting to weaken. So that confirms it. And the reason I think that you want to use these multiple data sets is because there are, there are still confusing pieces out there in the overall macro, uh, the mosaic of macro data. You go to like continuing and initial claims that just came out. Those on a seasonally adjusted basis still look pretty strong that we're not, their initial claims are, are kind of uh, sparse at this point still. They're not anywhere close to recessionary territory. So you have to try to figure out, okay, this piece of evidence doesn't fit into the late cycle playbook, but these other do. And then you have to make your final decision, which, which piece of data are you going to follow? And I think if you dig into the, the claims data and, and go through the, on a non-seasonally adjusted basis, that's the odd man out in this scenario. So I'm, I'm, we're focusing more on the actual payroll reports, residential construction payrolls, the direction of revisions and tax data. And all that points to cracks forming in the labor market in a late cycle environment. Wow. And sometimes, you know, uh, you know, people point to the evidence of the contrary. Sometimes people look at the best deepness uh, as a sort of, uh, an indication that well you know we may not be that that late in in this in this cycle uh, um you know what do, what do you say to that yeah that's a a common misperception there uh it, the 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 idea that we're having a bear steepener so the yield curve is steepening by way of the 10 year rising faster than the 2 year and that's uh 10 year yield rising faster than 2 year so that is the that's the phenomenon we've seen recently and many kind of bulls or opt those that are more maybe optimistically inclined uh, point to this and say, this is evidence of a, a bull market. And in fact, bear steepeners are more generally associated with bull markets. If you just look at the entire set of uh, historical occurrences, but usually the vast majority of these cases occur early in a cycle. After the Fed's done cutting rates, has pulled the short end down, and then the economy, which so the, the short end is much more Fed reactive, the long end is much more economic reactive. So as the Fed pulls the short end down and the economy starts to reaccelerate, you get the short end pinned down to the floor by the Fed. Then you get the economy reaccelerating, what pushes, which is what pushes the, the long end up. That's your classic bear steepener. And it comes early in a, in a cycle after the Fed's cut rates very rare to see a bear steepener come out of an inverted yield curve, which is where we are right now. And those are, it's a totally different game there. Those lead into recessions. And that's when you're, you're still inverted. The Fed has not cut rates yet. And you start seeing the 10 year rise for some reason. Those are, that's not a good sign. So it's important to, to slice and dice that data a little bit. And the bear steepener we're, we're currently going through is, is of that variety is, is, uh, is a much more of a late cycle phenomenon. Yeah, and I think that's um, 
emphasize the importance of actually looking through the circumstances that you're currently in alongside just site, you know, the uh, just taking raw quantitative data and just throwing it through, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, different regimes. So um, I'm glad you could point that out. So, you know, it looks like the evidence is overwhelming that we are um, in, in a uh, late cycle. So what happens next? Um, where do you think we're going? Is it going to be a hard landing or a soft landing, or uh, are there other other uh, different uh, paths that that could be followed? That's a that's really the most important question and the hardest question to answer. I think it's easier to say we're late cycle. It's it's hard. I've heard some people argue we're mid or early cycle, uh, but that's a I don't know. It's there's it's hard to make that case uh, to me. But as far as how the cycle ends that's a much more foggy question. And so we tried to look at it from a number of angles. And I think the, the evidence, the rates evidence, and the, the, what you can see out in the markets and compared to history points more towards a hard landing. But we have things in the cycle like the fiscal impulse that came through the system that we just have a hard time accounting for from just these historic uh, these historic uh, studies. So the things that, that we're looking at, if you're, if you're thinking through how do we get a soft landing, you need the Fed to really actively engineer this. And so you need, number one, inflation has to fall rapidly, which we've seen that happen. Uh, I think even though there's been a little bit of stall out in the disinflation, the inflation data has behaved as you would want if you're looking for a soft landing up until now. And then the next component of a soft landing would be a hyper, what we're calling a hyper reactive Fed. So the Fed needs to not just uh, sit back and kind of passively wait for the data to hit their 2% target. They need to go for it. They need to say, we're, we, we see this possibility of a soft landing and we're going to go for it. We're going to cut rates preemptively almost in anticipation of the slowdown to save the labor economy, to save the market, to the markets and go for the soft landing. And it's important to understand on the other side of that risk, on the other side of that decision is the risk that inflation reaccelerates. Hmm. They have to come in after their next move in hike rates again. So, but that setting that aside, I think that's the way you end up with the soft landing is disinflation, which we've had so far. And then the fed coming in and cutting rates quickly not not a long pause yeah and, and do you think we are in restrictive fed policy uh territory yet or are we actually a little bit further from that because you know i know you've already said we've already got to sort of where you think the fed you know the fed will pause from here at least but and then start cutting but is are we are we at the restrictive point yet um have we got there Initially. I think I think so, um, but it's not as it's a little shocking. I think everyone's a little surprised, and myself included, at how well the economy has handled this really mm -hmm. rapid rate increase. Um, there, are, and we'll talk about this. There, there's certain angles that you can look at Fed policy and say, well, it doesn't look so restrictive. Um, to make to, to give everyone an idea of where we are and what we would need the Fed to do. We've never seen, we've had four soft landings historically, and we've never seen the Fed 
uh, in any soft landing, stay on pause for more than seven months. So if the Fed's done hiking rates, they need to be cutting rates by next January. So it's important to think how restrictive are they? How restrictive is policy right now? And so if I look at it, uh, the one easy way to consider whether policy is restrictive or not is to look at nominal GDP versus the Fed funds rate. That's something we did. Uh, in, in soft landing cases, you really never get the Fed funds rate up more than closer than 80 basis points from nominal GDP. Today, we're at like we're five and a half percent on Fed funds rate and like 6.1 percent on nominal GDP. So we're 60 basis points away. So in that if from that view of the world, we're restrictive. But there are many hiking cycles where we end up much higher uh, Fed funds rate ends up much higher than nominal GDP. We're not there yet. The other factor we have to consider when we're trying to put Fed funds rate, is, is it restrictive or not, is consider balance sheet policy. So the Fed's yeah. undergoing QT right now. How much does that add to the overall funds rate if you're thinking through in a historic context? And no one really knows. The Fed white papers suggest like a 50 basis point addition. So let's call it the shadow, quote unquote, shadow Fed funds rate is say 6% right now, which is basically in line with nominal GDP. And I would say looking at historic hike cycles, that is restrictive. Um, the, the only other point that you could make as a counter to that is there's the old Taylor rule, which takes uh, inflation and an, an assumption around R star, an assumption around inflation an assumption around the output gap and basically bakes these things together and suggests what the Fed funds rate should be. And if you make a couple, I'd say reasonable assumptions, the Taylor rule says we still have another, say, 200 basis points for the Fed to hike. So on that basis, we are not yet, the Fed's not yet restrictive. But I think there are too many assumptions going on in the Taylor rule for me to um, take it too seriously. I'm a more simple person, so I'm looking at just nominal GDP. Yeah, and that's always the difficult thing with Taylor rule, you know, uh, having a reliable estimate of R star, let alone the other uh, variables, it's it's very difficult, you know, maybe figure it out in a f couple of years after the fact, right? <laughs> yeah, you'll know, you won't know. It's uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, and R star is a is a mysterious concept, you know. It's a, and even even measuring the output gap, all there's error in all these things, and so uh, yeah, it's it's very academic. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's tough. And there's the other thing you could say with the Taylor rule, not to get down that rabbit hole, but you, you read fed papers like the St. Louis fed came out and said, we should do the feds doing a modified Taylor rule where they don't take trailing PCE in the equation. They look at break even inflation implied through the tips market. And mm. then, so for right now, trailing PCE is something like 4.3%, but 10 year break evens, are at 2.3%. So if we swap in those break-evens in the Taylor rule equation, you end up with a suggested Fed funds rate of about 5%. So these this rule and, and this framework is highly sensitive to the assumptions you make, and those assumptions are all over the place. Yeah. So, you know, we do have an inverted yield curve right now. Um, have there ever been any soft landings when we're in an inverted curve, um, has it, has it, have we seen any evidence of that in the past? Yeah, the short answer is no. We have not 
ever had a soft landing if you go back to the cases that we have data to study. We've never seen this, the curve get inverted. I mean, we're, we're far from just a little inverted right now. We're more inverted when we were, we were just a few months ago, we were at 109 basis points on the two tens, which takes us to the most inverted we've been going back to uh, 40 years, going back to really the, the Volcker days of the early 80s and, and late 70s. So this is uh, highly unusual. Would be I would classify it. If we get a soft landing out of this yield curve environment, it's highly unusual. Of course, there's been a lot of debate around has the yield curve lost its predictive power and things like that. And I look at it, all I say is I don't think that the, the yield curve is a predictor. I think it's a more of a causative factor in the economy and it works through the banking system because the yield curve is essentially turning the modern banking business model upside down where you're usually borrowing short and lending long and that's uh, impossible to do with an inverted yield curve. So it chokes off loan growth usually is what you see. And that's that choking off of loan growth kills money supply and ultimately brings the economy down. And that's how a yield curve works from my view. It's a philosophic view. Um, and so we've, of course, the fiscal impulse is another way to send money into the economy and that's slowing things down. But the last thing I'd say about the yield curve is that we have a tendency to be impatient as investors. And the old rule of thumb historically is that there's like a 20 to 23 month lag time from initial inversion to a recession. If anyone was paying attention last year, they'll remember all the research notes coming out of Wall Street telling you this. Well, we're at like month 17 or 18 right now. So we are still on the early side given historic inversions and when recessions hit. That's just, the, the, I think, the right context. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the key thing is that, you know, we are way out of sample, right? We, know we're, we, haven't, we haven't been in this environment ever before, so we can try and learn as much from past uh, episodes, but uh, there's always key differences in the environment that we're in right now. But, um, you know, we at Wisdom Tree, we believe that um, late cycles are great for commodities. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say in general, the evidence is that commodities outperform late cycle. Um, I think if you break it into hard landing and soft landings, the evidence gets a little more mixed. So hmm. in in cycles that end with a hard landing, which is the, the rule, and soft landings are the exception, you see commodity-based sectors and commodities themselves performing well. I've always said uh, to me, oil is what I would call the shortest duration asset on the menu, for instance, and oil is the the main commodity that dictates commodity indices that we look at. Mm. So as a short duration asset, oil doesn't look to the future and forecast slowdowns like stocks do. Uh, it must trade off the physical reality in front of it. And so you get to the end of a cycle, you're not quite yet a recession. You may be a lot in a lot of ways. That's when you're seeing uh, growth kind of just peak out and the demand is still there and oil is responding to the per present reality with no view to the future. So that's what makes it a short duration or you know, late cycle asset in my view. Wow. And um, so 
you know, we have seen some really strong uh, oil price movements in, in recent weeks. Um, you know, demand remains relatively strong despite uh, lots of fears of, you know, uh, economy tipping over and, uh, you know, especially with the weakness in the, in, in the Chinese economy. Um, you know, what's your view there on, on oil? Do you think uh, there's there's much further upside there or are we closer to the to the end for that uh, for that oil rally? I think we're closer to the end. Uh, that's my view. Uh, the we were pretty bullish in the summer. Uh, as you came into June and July, what we saw forming was this kind of perfect storm for for oil, where speculators, hedge funds, CTAs have really dialed up their short positioning, and that was your that was your kindling. And then you had OPEC and Saudi Arabia that would were quite determined to bring the price of oil up and that was your spark. And, and so OPEC decided to, um, they were going to make the price move higher, come hell or high water. And that's what the Saudis did. And now we're kind of through that move and the, the speculators have covered their positions uh, for the most part. And we are now at a place where uh, I think, Price is high enough for the Saudis and for OPEC. And so the next thing you have to wonder about is how does this impact demand, of course, and more importantly to me is when does that spare capacity that's been removed come back onto the market? Um, so that's the that's the way I see it. Our call was, and again, it was I think it was pretty out of consensus at the time. Our call back in uh, June, July was that we would see $100 oil in the second half of the year. Uh, we're not quite there yet, so I stick with the call. I think we probably do touch that, but again, that's a touch and mm. then a come down, not a, we're not going to average that or sit there for a long period of time in my view. So that's how we see the market. Where are you at right now? I, we haven't spoken about the oil market in a while. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm. Absolutely. So, you know, we've also been uh, discussing the fact that, you know, OPEC uh, plus has just generally been un was unhappy with oil prices sub 90. And one of the main reasons behind that is most OPEC nations uh, tend to have nationalized oil companies and they are more concerned about fiscal break-even uh, price for oil than commercial break-evens for, for, you know, for, the, for the oil companies. Um, what I mean by that fiscal break-even is what is the price of oil uh, that's needed for the revenues, uh, you know, uh, tax revenues, royalty revenues that go to the government to be able to meet the government's expenditures or its social spending uh, programs. And for most countries in OPEC, um, that is relatively high. So you have countries like Iraq and, uh, you know, um, Iran, who have uh, fiscal break-evens in, you know, in the hundreds. They seem a bit unrealistic to target, but the largest country in the OPEC group is Saudi Arabia um, and its fiscal break even is around 90. So that's why, it, you know, and it, if Saudi Arabia has the most political clout within, within, within the group, it's managed to convince Russia to also uh, maintain production restraint. And I think it's got there, it's got to 90. How much incentive it has to push it that much more, greater than 90 to 100 is, is questionable. I think if it does that, too much, it will start to accelerate um, demand for alternative 
uh, forms of energy, accelerate the energy transition that's already happening. So I don't think it wants to push it that much further. But then again, I don't think um, Saudi Arabia would want to see prices fall any uh, from any from this level. So I think Saudi Arabia is going to be absolute gung-ho on trying to maintain this 90-plus uh, region. So even if you start to get that weakening of demand, um, and that, that, you know, that may uh, start to uh, become evident from, from China, just given the, you know, the slightly weaker economy there, um, uh, you know, I think Saudi will sort of lean against that and cut further. Um, if you look at the International Energy Agency uh, forecasts, they're looking at 70% of the demand growth in, in, in oil uh, this year really coming from, from China. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of China dependency, and I think Saudi Arabia will sort of counteract that with possibly further cuts to keep a level price. Yeah, it makes sense. Saudi, so the Saudi put is back in the market. I think so. And, and, and maybe, you know, I'm interested in your views on this as well, but we also believe that, you know, um, the U.S. has been increasing production um, in recent months to be able to uh, sort of counteract some of the uh, decline in OPEC production. But we question how long that can, can continue. Um, we certainly haven't seen an increase in rig counts uh, in operation in the U.S. So um, and we don't believe each rig has gotten that much more efficient. So possibly uh, what we're seeing is those drilled but uncompleted wells being uh, more highly utilized, but that has a limit. You know, there's there's only a certain inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells out there. Financing to uh, oil production hasn't uh, improved or increased. And so we think that U.S. oil production possibly could slow down um, as well. So th that will help keep oil markets uh, tight. But I don't know if you've got any views on, 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 uh, on, on U.S. production there as well. Yeah, I share your um, general skepticism of how much higher production can go from here. Uh, and I, I don't. I think that the major component of the OPEC calculus has been that that uh, shales um, coming to the rescue for the oil market days are behind us. And I honestly think that a big part of the Saudis' plan here is to keep everyone in the market on their toes. And so. Mm -hmm. That spare capacity, everybody's the oil's kind of had this big rally on the fact that the spare, the announcement that the spare capacity will not be coming back uh, this year um, from from the Saudis and from OPEC. And I think the Saudis have that unilateral one million barrels sitting out there. I think they could decide to do something different with that in the right scenario. If shale increased too much, if they didn't like something they were seeing on the international markets. Uh, I think their goal is to keep everyone on their toes. I don't think they want, they certainly don't want speculators building up short positions. We've seen that. And I don't think they want this, the shale complex coming back with a massive wave of new supply. So I think that their new policy is to keep everyone um, guessing, despite the fact they're supposed to be the benevolent market manager. So uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's coming back for, there's geologic reasons to second guess it. And there are now geopolitical reasons. And more importantly, shareholders have, have spoken now for years that they, they're rewarding the companies that return capital, that don't uh, fund a whole bunch of CapEx. Um, and the final thing I'd say is the Saudis have consistently tried to keep the curve backwardated because it stops yeah. the shale industry from hedging 
much production far out. And so it keeps, again, everyone on their toes, which is, I think, their main goal here. So, yeah, I, I'm skeptical. I don't think shale's coming to the rescue of uh, the markets. OPEC's pretty firmly in control. Yeah. And maybe we, if we sort of turn the table back again, go a little bit back to the macro, because does this recent increase in, in oil prices, um, if you know, let's assume it's sustained, um, does that complicate the inflation outlook and therefore the Fed's policy path? You know, how, how do you see the Fed looking at this data? Are they going to see it as transitory or um, do you think there's potential for them to act a bit further on the back of this? The, the, the good news for the Fed is I think that the disinflationary impulse in the data is, is so strong that it's going to be difficult for oil to really take uh, take, take it off course. And so that means that the shelter and disinflation that's coming into the system, and I know your firm and Jeremy has a pretty strong view on shelter inflation coming down rapidly. Uh, and I think that's somewhat accurate here. I think that it's shelter inflation is going to come down through next year. And there's very little that can change that given the way it's calculated. So shelter inflation is going to be a disinflationary tailwind. And you'd really need a massive spike in oil to upset that um, and really change the calculation on CPI. But still, oil would, would stop headline CPI from getting to that 2% level. And so then the Fed's kind of got this, this um, assuming oil stays around these levels or even higher, the Fed does have this kind of conundrum where it has to decide whether it's going to go for that soft landing. And that's the, mm -hmm. that to me is the, what's setting up as the really interesting decision. Will the Fed cut rates? Assuming the economy is not yet in recession, it's sort of weakening. And the inflation data has come down uh, and is likely to stay down for like, you know, eight or 12 months, is the Fed going to cut rates at that point preemptively and go for that soft landing? Um, I'm kind of, I don't think they will, but that's my best guess. I'm open-minded to it, but I don't think they will uh, because the risk on the other side is that as we get this disinflationary impulse out, that you reignite the housing market, that oil continues to be a thorn in your side, that, all of that fiscal stimulus that's still kind of sitting latent in the system is re-energized through uh, another round of easing, which is what the market would be hoping for here. So I don't see that. I don't see that as the likely outcome. Honestly, I don't see the Fed going for the soft landing. I think it would be a very risky move because there's a good chance they would turn around, have to turn around and hike rates even higher in the next cycle. Then it would be a I think I look at like the 1978 case, Fed paused, inflation didn't really get under control. And just a handful of months later, it had to go back and start hiking again. And the next hiking cycle took us into that late 70s, early 80s period where Fed funds rate was significantly above nominal GDP, you know, five, 6% above nominal GDP. And that's, that's when you really get the, crushing uh monetary policy which is uh so i don't think the fed wants to go back there so that's that's how i see it but oil is definitely complicating the entire outlook for them yeah so how do you recommend investors hedge against this uncertainty of soft landing because if you look at equity markets it seems like a soft landing is well priced into that 
but there's a lot of evidence against it. You know, what, what can investors do to maybe hedge themselves against what's already priced into markets? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the real $64,000 question because to me, the cycle has gone farther than most expected. And so, mm. to truthfully, we wrote our first soft landing. We wrote our framework for a soft landing back in January. And we said we thought soft landing was like a 25% probability event. I personally think that the odds for a soft landing have increased since then. The, the cycle's gone farther. The inflation data has behaved. The economy hasn't cracked. The Fed, it's out there. If the Fed wants to go for it, the soft landing is out there. It's just what's the risk reward of that? So I think the odds of a soft landing have actually increased. But the problem is equities have gone and fully priced that soft landing in, in from my view. So you've got double-digit earnings growth for 24, double-digit earnings growth for 25. That's not recessionary um, pricing for the equity market. And I think you have to wonder, uh, so that's already, the soft landing is already priced in. So let's say the odds of the soft landing went from 25% to 40% based on what I just said. Okay, well, it doesn't, that doesn't justify, given what's priced into equities, going out and just fully just moving whole hog into equities. So there's, that's one problem. If you are going to be in equities, the thing you do to diversify, in my opinion, is you buy you overweight pockets of the market that benefit in a hard landing scenario. And so that to me leads me back to the energy sector. So we've been recommending the energy sector. It's not just about an oil outlook. It's about diversification. We've been on this train for years now that you want to be overweight energy as a diversifier in your portfolio. I do think oil has entered a period where it's going to be higher highs and higher lows for years in the future. But I also, I mean, that's, but that's not the reason necessarily to be long energy. The reason is because the introduction of inflation into this macro picture has changed what works within portfolios. Bonds are no longer moving counter to stocks in this environment. So your whole portfolio volatility has increased. You need to find things that diversify. Energy diversifies the inflation story. Energy diversifies the risk of a hard landing. So to me, you want to stay overweight energy, even as we get to kind of the end of this oil move. Of course, rebalance, you know, keep your positions um, in line with what your targets are. But the bottom line is uh, the diversification benefits of these assets are really what's what's uh, driving the, 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 our attractive, the attractiveness to us. And we at Wisdom Tree also think uh, gold is extremely beneficial in that diversification as well. I mean, it tends to behave so differently to your traditional assets, bonds, equities, and energy. Um, and that differentiated behavior um, really adds a lot to, to you know, to, to that diversification. You know, as I said, the, the, the only free lunch in, in investing is that diversification, and that is enhanced the, the the more decorrelated the assets are. I don't know if you have a, have a view on gold there. I agree. I mean, I, again, it goes back to if, you're, if your assets are priced in a soft landing, you need to find things that do well historically in hard landings. And mm -hmm. gold outperforms in hard landing scenarios along with energy and commodities in general. And so I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Like gold's, gold's always a good diversifier, but at this point in the cycle, I think it's definitely... A good diversifier.
Excellent. So just looking at your uh, strategic recommendation, um, you know, you've got commodities sort of basically at a benchmark at 10%, but you have a, an underweight on, on both bonds and uh, equities. So um, that kind of gives it a little bit of elevation to, to, to commodities. Um, what, do you, what do you think it will take to trigger an overweight on, on commodities, you know, even uh, beyond uh, where, where you are right now? And do you think we're any close to uh, moving any of those triggers? Uh, we've, so we've got a mat with four in our strategic recommendations. We have four assets. We have cash, long bonds, stocks, and commodities. And we target a 5% cash, 55% stocks, um, 35% uh, uh, bonds, right? I'm trying to make sure I get this right. And then uh, the rest in commodities. So the, the commodity, so this is, this is our benchmark. And so we're underweight equities slightly against our benchmark and we're, we're aggressively underweight bonds against our benchmark and we're equal weight commodities. So when you control for our maxed out cash position, we are really favoring commodities, then stocks, then bonds in this environment. And I do think it's getting close to a time to adjust that positioning, but I don't see us increasing our commodity exposure. We were more positive on commodities back in the summer. And so I'm much more, uh, I, I would be much more likely to downgrade commodities as the next move. The question is, where do you go with that, that uh, money? We already maxed our cash position out and I, I feel comfortable with that right now. The question is, do you go into to stocks or bonds with that, that commodity weight? Uh, not ready to pull the trigger yet, but uh, it's really going to depend on how markets get priced in the next, uh, say, month or two. If we get a sell-off that opens up an opportunity in stocks, maybe we take the money out of commodities going to stocks. And if not, if yields are still rising, last time I checked, we were at bumping up against new highs on the long bond. At some point, there are no bad assets, only bad prices. At some point, uh, you get the right price to take some extra fixed income risk, which has been our least favorite uh, asset for months now. And so that's the... Uh, that's an ongoing decision process, but the next move would probably be to, to move weight out of commodities into one of these other assets. And if the cycle plays out how we expect hard landing, it would probably be a fixed income, to be honest. Well, that's great. And I think uh, we've, uh, we've run out of time there, but thank you so much, Warren, for sharing your valuable insights with us. Um, please do let our audience know, how can they read more of your research and uh, you know, follow the material that you produce? Yeah, so it's uh, the company is 314 Research, and that's the number three, and then everything else spelled out, 14 Research. And you can go to Google us, go to our website, 314research.com, put your name in. If you're an institutional investor, we'll send you some sample research, and uh, we can talk about uh, getting you on as a client. And if you just want to see kind of our quick thoughts uh, without a paywall or anything like that, come to... Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is just my name, Warren Pies, and 314 is at 3F underscore research on Twitter. Pretty active there. Pretty active. Not not as active as some people, but we, we try to keep uh, everybody updated on what we're thinking. Uh, final spot is I'm doing a Substack stack to discuss energy thoughts, really brief energy thoughts, more 
for a, a, a larger audience. And so you can, you can check me out there. The name of the Substack is the energy cable. So, um, that's the, uh, those are the ways to find our research or find our thoughts. Right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Commodity Exchange. If you want to hear more from us at Wisdom Tree, uh, please do subscribe on uh, whichever platform you're using for this podcast. Um, you can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, uh, with the handle at Nitesh Shah WT. And if you want to learn more about commodities, uh, do visit Wisdom Tree's website, where you'll find a wide range of research materials and insights. Until next time, that's me and Warren. Uh, Thank you very much.